Good morning. How are we doing? Good morning. Uh, in the beginning, uh, God created marriage. Um, it, it was one of the first things that he does. He creates the garden. He creates man. He creates woman. And then he speaks marriage uh, into existence. And, and listen, here, here's the whole sermon for today. I'm, I'm just going to give it away right at the beginning. Um, and, and then I'm just going to try to then back up and prove my point through the whole rest of the sermon. So here's the whole thing. The, the purpose of marriage is to display the glory of God. That that's what marriage is for. That's its purpose. This is one of the primary ways, it's not the only way, but it is one of the primary ways that God uses to show who he is to the world. His attributes of grace and love and mercy and kindness and all these attributes, he uses marriage as a tool to put that on display, to show the world what he is like. So marriage becomes the great drama in which God shows himself to his children and to a lost and dying world. God's heart and God's hope for marriage when he created it was to be this safe place to where one human being can bear their soul to another human being. He, God wants his children to have deep abiding friendships. And so what he did is said, I want to create marriage so that you will have a best friend. That, that's his idea for marriage. That's how he and why he created it. So he could display his glory so that his children would have a relationship to where there is love and protection and service. He, he creates marriage in this way so that he can take his sinful children and make them less sinful and more like him. Right? I mean, you guys have seen this play out. As, as you live with somebody day in and day out, they see all of your flaws, they see all of your hiccups, all of your mess ups, all of your sin. And then God's hope and plan is that the husband and the wife would then work together as a team, as one in unity, to encourage one another onto a life of holiness, being less and less sinful and more and more like Christ. This is God's beautiful design for marriage. God's design for marriage and, and what his hope for it was, was that it would be vast, enormous, gorgeous, and beautiful. That's how he created it. That's what marriage is. It's to display his glory. Now, here's the problem. Every person in this room has been negatively affected by marriage, whether it be a destructive relationship that your parents had in marriage that has brought a negative effect on your life, or whether it be just the strife in your own marriage that has brought negative effects in your life. So at its creation, beautiful, vast, glorious, to, to display God's glory, to be a safe haven for God's children, to be a sanctifying engine, to push us on to holiness at, at, at its creation. But then there's this big shift, and now the, the way that our entire world views marriage is no longer a beautiful gift from God to be treasured, but an outdated annoyance to be manipulated to suit your own needs. Something's happened in our world today. This beautiful gift that was created by God and given to us, marriage, that beautiful gift has been distorted, broken. Just listen to some of these statistics, and I'm sure some of you 
will know them. Today, the average marrying age is 30 years old. Listen to this. Never before in any society or culture has the marrying, average marrying age been that old. 55% of men, 25 to 29, are not married. 55% of men in that age bracket. Now, here's what's astounding. In the 1960s, that number was 16%. Okay, so, so just years back, you would have been hard-pressed to find a 25 or a 30-year-old man who wasn't married. The, the scope or the trajectory was you graduate, you get a job, you get a wife, and you have kids. It's what People did, but now we're waiting longer and longer and longer to get married because marriage is no longer seen as a valued treasure um, from God, given to us by God, but just kind of an outdated annoyance that if you do decide to enter into it, you can just sort of manipulate it to suit your own needs. Half of women who are 21 to 39 will at one point cohabitate with a partner and not be married. Okay, so why are people waiting so long? Because we live in a society today where people believe that you can seemingly get the benefits of marriage without the commitment, right? So, so you can get all of the fun stuff that comes with marriage just without um, the binding contract of it. I mean, who wants that anyway? You can have all the fun, all the passion, all the connection outside of this beautiful gift that God gives. So why bother with it? Why do you even need it? Okay, now, let me just prove to you that's the way our culture and society thinks. Just think about the last time you were watching television and there was a steamy love scene on the TV. Now, I know all of us immediately flipped the channel, but before you did, okay, steamy love scene comes on the television were those two people in that film or TV show, were they married or not married? Not married. Not married. They're not married. Why? Because most people believe that marriage is the coffin nail. It is the death nail in passion and fun and, and vibrance and vitality. I mean, you want to kill a relationship? Get married. <sighs> so this brings us to the incredibly sad statistic that Many of us know the divorce rate in America is 50%. Again, in the 1960s, it was only 25%. So, so you've got to see a radical shift happening in our culture. Going from, in the 1960s, again, only 25% of marriages ended in divorce. And now, I mean, on your wedding day, you might as well just flip a coin. Right? Heads, we stay together. Tails, we get divorced. And that, that's the odds that people are facing today. And listen, and here is the incredibly sad reality of that divorce rate. Listen to this. Here's the painful part. This is empirical fact. Kids who come from broken homes, that is parents who get divorced, those kids are more likely to earn a low income, more likely to receive jail time, are statistically less happy, and more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. This is a pervasive and systemic problem in our culture. We've taken this beautiful gift that God has given us and we've, we've trashed it and thrown it aside and it's, it's destroying our society. Because as many historians, many people will tell you, 
marriage, the nuclear family, is essentially the building block of society. And so when we throw that aside or when we distort it, society breaks down. So where did it all go wrong? Okay, so obviously we at this church talk a lot about sin. We say we, we know that sin is the problem. It, it all goes back to the garden. And, and we're reading that text this morning where, where he tells them, hey, don't eat of that tree. Okay, don't, that tree. Now, <clears throat> theologians have batted back and forth. What in the world is going on with this tree? What kind of tree is it? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, what, was it a big tree, a short tree, a, a evergreen? I mean, what, what are we working with here? What's going on with this tree? Well, listen to the way it's worded. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So essentially, by Adam and Eve eating of this tree, what they're saying is, God, you no longer decide what is right and wrong for me. I decide. You, God, no longer decide what is good and evil. I, human, I get to decide. That, that's the declaration. It's the ultimate declaration of rebellion against God for them to eat of this tree because that's what they're saying. We know best, not you, God. Okay? So when it's come to marriage, that's exactly the same thing we've said. God, we read in your word what marriage is supposed to be and how things are supposed to function. But God, we're going to ignore what you have said and we are going to make up our own definition of what marriage is supposed to be. Which brings us to the two main thoughts or the two main views of marriage. Okay, So I, I want to talk these out. Um, and just look at these two kind of big idea views of how modern culture, modern society would view marriage. Okay, so we're going to look at those two. And then I, I want to try to show you that we're looking at kind of two separate views, but the root and the heart of it is the same. Okay, and then we're going to look at how God designed marriage to be and, and what the purpose of it is. So, so today... Big, broad brush strokes today. Okay, so, so that's where we're headed. My, my hope today is that we're going to lay the foundation again that marriage is about the glory of God. Amen. Marriage is about the glory of God. That's the whole sermon. That's it. So let's look at these two ideas. Okay, idea number one. Again, where did we go wrong? We went wrong by defining it wrong, by saying, we know better than you know, God. We're going to define marriage the way we want to define marriage. And here is one way we have incorrectly defined it. Number one, marriage is about social duty. Marriage is about social duty, meaning marriage is more about marrying someone who is wealthy, intelligent, uh, comes from a good family with a good name. That's what marriage is really about. It's about social status. Or um, maybe it's social status by just being accepted. You know, um, all of my friends are getting married and I have no one to hang out with anymore. They're all watching movies and snuggling on the couch and there I am, you know, the, the third wheel with Gooseberry just hanging out. They all got married. So in, in order to gain social status, I guess, what do I have to do now? Well, I got to get married too. Or how about this social status? Um, for many of you, if, if you're in here and you're not married and you're young, uh, possibly you've been hearing comments like this uh, from your mother. You know, I really like to have grandkids sometime. Jeez, <laughs> killing me, killing me, mom. You know, when, when are you going to get married? We just, we just want to see you happy, right? It's that, so, that social pressure. 
right? So some people have viewed marriage, okay, why do you, what, what's the purpose of marriage? Well, the purpose of marriage is for social status. It's to be accepted by my friends because they're all married, or it's to marry somebody with a good name, it's got a good status, or it's to be accepted by uh, my parents and their friends because they're putting pressure on me to get married, so that's the purpose of marriage. Social status. Now, within this structure, is it about passion or romance? No, no, no. It, again, it's about social status. So in, in this model, this view of marriage, if you want passion and romance, what do you do? Yeah, you, you step outside the marriage. You have something on the side. Again, it's about social status and everyone thinking you've got it all together. And look at my awesome family and my kids are smiling in the Christmas photo and everything. But really on the side, I've got this whole other passionate relationship with a coworker or whatever. Right? So that is one view of marriage, that it is simply a social duty, okay? Now, again, do they divorce? Well, not in this view, again, because it's social status. If you want passion and excitement and fun, you know, you, you hook up with a coworker, or you go out and find someone else. So you, you have one that you keep at home, and then you have one that you go out with, okay? That is the social, the social view of marriage, Number two, and this is most likely the people in this room, okay? The other one probably isn't like most people in this room, but most people in this room would probably agree with this definition because this is the one that's most pervasive in our culture and you have been taught incessantly. Number two, marriage is about emotional connection. Marriage is primarily about emotional connection. So we say things like this, have you met Mr. Wright? Have you met Mrs. Wright? Or was it love at first sight? I mean, when you saw them, did the, did the sparks fly? Okay, well, if you haven't met them yet, here, just go on this website, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to give you a test, and we're going to come up with 37 points of, of connectivity, and it's going to guarantee that there's going to be emotional connection in your spouse and in your marriage. Right? Because that's what marriage is really all about. It's about emotional connectivity. It's about just, just feeling um, emotionally attracted and having that passion and excitement there. That's what it's all about. Okay? And again, I just want to prove this to you. Have you ever, ever watched the scourge of Western society known as a romantic comedy? Okay? Yes, this is the scourge of Western society. Action films ordained by God. <laughs> Romantic comedies of the devil. <laughs> because here's what they do. They reinforce in the minds and the hearts of people that it's only and all about feeling the emotion. And it's only and all about feeling that connection and having those warm fuzzies and everything in the end always ends up great. That's not reality. Amen. But it, it ends up being what? Listen, it's not reality. Real people don't make out in the rain. Okay? That's not real. We go inside. Okay? We go inside. But what it does is it promotes something that is ultimately unattainable. It promotes this sort of fantasy world to where eye boogers and coffee breath don't exist. But we know that they do. So. There are days and times, and, and listen, this, this is the truth of it. There are days and times where you don't feel like loving your wife. There are days when the women will, I mean, 
Just ask a married lady in here. There are days when they wake up, weeks on end possibly, where they just don't feel like loving their husband. But again, this is the beauty of what God has created because what God says is, I'm not loving you because I feel like it. I'm loving you because I'm in a covenant relationship with you. Therefore, I'm just going to love you. So again, the problem in this view is what? When the passion is gone, when the romance is gone, so is the marriage. It's over. And we say things like this, oh, we fell out of love. The romance was gone. Passion just wasn't there anymore. They changed. I don't know who this person is anymore. The person that I loved no longer exists, and so I'm out of here. And this is the problem with the view of marriage, that it is all about emotional connectivity. Now, what's the root behind both of those? There's one root behind the the socially driven marriage, and, and, and there's the same root behind the emotionally driven marriage. This, the, the root is this. Listen, here is what our culture believes. Marriage is primarily about me. That's the root behind them both. You see, the people who have the social view of marriage, well, it's about me looking good. It's about my status. It's about me gaining acceptability in the culture. And the other one is all about me as well because it's all about my emotional needs, my emotional wants, my sexual desires. And the moment that those things are not met, I'm out of here. So essentially, the problem in our culture when it comes to marriage and how it's viewed and what its purpose is, is our culture is saying, What sinful culture says, it's all about me. Therefore, marriage is all about me. Marriage is all about me. Here's the definition of a me-centered marriage. In the me marriage, the perfect spouse is someone who affirms me and does not want to change me. They release me and they don't shackle me. They accept me just as I am. That's the me marriage. Just just love me for who I am. Don't try to change me. Don't try to shackle me. I just want you to affirm everything that I already am. Because it's all about me. And I want you to meet all of my emotional needs. I want you to meet all of my sexual desires. Because at the base of it, this marriage is about me. Now, here is why that will never, ever Ever, ever, ever work. Because it places, again, an unrealistic view and weight on your spouse. Yeah. Okay? So if you're single in here and and you have adopted the the me-centered marriage, here's what that means. It means that you're going to have to find someone who doesn't want to change anything about you. They love everything about you, and you don't want to change anything about them because... They think you're perfect, and you think they're perfect. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, in what reality is that ever going to come true? Right? It's, that's impossible. The, the me-centered marriage simply doesn't work. It fundamentally breaks down. And so the moment that that person doesn't meet your emotional needs, doesn't meet your sexual desires, the moment that they see a flaw in you and in love trying to come to you and, and correct that flaw to the glory of God, 
<coughs> you get frustrated, you get mad, they're not meeting my needs. <coughs> so, it doesn't work. It's absolutely impossible. And you end up, again, falling out of love and divorce ensues. Now, the biblical position is that marriage is not primarily about you. It's not, okay? Your marriage, your marriage is not primarily about you. As I've sat across the table from couple after couple after couple in marriage counseling and church discipline issues and um, as I've talked with parents who are struggling with their teenagers and it's stemming from a troubled marriage, I just feel like if I could just get that principle across to them, then so many of the issues and problems that we get in marriage and that we arrive to in marriage would be alleviated because they would see it's not ultimately about me. And, and let's be real, I know a lot of times the issues in my marriage, okay, the issues in my marriage would be solved if I would just stop being so selfish and realize that my marriage isn't all about Kirk. So, if the foundation of marriage isn't me, the foundation of marriage isn't you, um, then what is it? I mean, what, what is the purpose of marriage if it's not to meet my needs, to, to meet my wants, if it's not about social status. I mean, uh, again, if you get the definition wrong, the whole thing blows up. So, so we have to get the right foundation. We have to get the right truth about what marriage is, what marriage is for, so that when we build on top of it, the house that we build will stand the test of time. I mean, again, why are all these people getting divorced? Why, I mean, why is the divorce rate just so incredibly high? Because the house has been built on a foundation that cannot support it. Yeah. Okay? So, what is it? Okay? What is it? Again, I'll restate what we stated in the beginning. Marriage is to display the glory of God. Marriage is for the glory of God. Marriage is not about me. My marriage is ultimately about him, okay? So let's jump into our text this morning. Um, I, I want to show you um, three purposes that, again, are centered around bringing glory to God. Um, but I want to show you kind of three big ideas in this text that are going to show you how marriage is to ultimately glorify God by displaying his qualities and his characteristics first to your spouse, then to your children, and then to the world. Yeah. Okay? So, so that, that's what marriage is for. It, it's to show your spouse. My, my, my goal in my marriage okay, is not to be God, okay? but it is to show my spouse what God is like. And then for our children to see that relationship happening and for our children to get a glimpse of what God is like and then for the outside world to look in on our family and say, what's happening there? This is very unique. This is very interesting. They're loving, they're caring, they serve one another. What's happening in those moments? When, when my wife is receiving love, when my children are, are seeing this happen, when the outside world, that's displaying God's glory. The world is seeing God's 
glory. They're seeing his attributes played out in a, in a glorious play. They're, they're, they're seeing it enacted. They're going, wow, that, this is unique. This is something otherly. This is something godly. This is God's glory on display. That's the purpose of marriage. Okay? So, verse 18 through 20. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. And all the men said, Amen. Amen. I will make, a, uh, make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was no found. Uh, there was not found a helper fit for him. So this begins with a very obvious and clear statement. It is not good for uh, the man to be alone. Then it does this weird thing in the text where it shifts gears and we go into this animal naming thing. Okay, <laughs> you ever thought about why it does that? I mean. To me, I'm just looking at the text. You would go, then the Lord God said, it was not good for man to be alone. Take that part, skip that part, and move directly to, and he made Adam fall asleep and took the rib and made the woman. Okay, What's the deal with the naming of the animals? Well, first, obviously God is showing here that humanity or mankind has dominion over animals. Okay, uh, We have a soul. Sorry, people. Peter. We have a soul, animals do not. Amen. Humans are the crown jewel glory of his creation. We are something separate from the animals. We have dominion over them and rule over them. That's very clear here uh, because he is naming them. He is giving them a name, showing authority over them. But it's also showing that there isn't an equal partner for Adam. Yeah. So God's saying two things to Adam. He's saying, all right, you're in charge. Here's all the animals. Okay, so just start naming them. And uh, it's not good for you to be alone. So in your process of naming, see if you come up with a good partner. Okay, orangutan, ooh, too hairy. Hippo, oh, I, don't know, I don't know about that. Giraffe. Okay, so do you see what's happening here? God is showing him, yes, you, yes, you have authority, but there's also something missing. God is saying, Adam, listen, I've created you in such a way that there is a peace missing. Yeah. <laughs> I've created you, Adam, okay, men in the room, you are created in such a way that there is intrinsically a peace missing that what God does is then brings along this woman to complete his creation. That makes sense? Okay. So... That's what he says to him. It's not good for uh, man to be alone. So why is it ultimately bad for man to be alone? Well, mainly because man is made in God's image and God himself is not alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Why? Well, because we saw back in Genesis, God made man in his image, in his image. Image. That means he is like God, not that humans are God, but humans are like God in the sense that we share his communicable attributes and we represent him to the world. So if God himself is not alone, right, because he is one God and three persons, okay, 
Let's try that again. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, known as the Trinity, okay? So because he himself, from before time began, has been in this great committed love relationship with himself, as the Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Father, and the Spirit has loved the Father, and the Son, and the Father, and the Son have loved the Spirit, and they have served one another, loved one another, cherished one another, been passionate about one another. For Adam to be alone is not um, in alignment with him being made in the image of God. Okay? Again, the, if you come here today and you're going, I've got issues and problems with my marriage, and you're giving me a lot of theology. Again, this is about laying the proper foundation to build the house. Yeah. Okay? So, so you've got to see this. You've got to know that this is what God is doing. So if you're taking notes, number one, the purpose of marriage is to glorify God by showing the Trinitarian unity found in the Godhead. To show the world the same Trinitarian unity that's found in the Godhead can be found between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. There is unity there. In marriage, man and woman are to love one another the same way God loves himself within the Trinity. In marriage, we are to be one as God and the Trinity is one, a unified in purpose, in love, in humble helping, in delight, in honor. The Father loves the Son's body just as if it were his own because it is his own. There is a united unity, unbreakable, unstoppable, just as the unity between a married couple is to be unbreakable and unstoppable. Now, for the married couples in the room. With the unity that we see in the Trinity that existed before time began, are you displaying that same type of unity in your marriage? Here's a better way to ask that question. Are you guys on the same team? In your marriage, are you guys on the same team? Are you on the same page? Again, I, as, as I've done marriage counseling and, and talked with couples and, and as I've, I've studied my own marriage and talked, there's, there's a lot of times where we can get into this kind of language. Well, you know, he always, well, you know, she does this or she says that. And, you know, they will never stop doing this. And so it's there. You're on the same team. You're on the same team. I mean, are you on the same page with how you're spending your finances? Are you on the same page with how you're parenting your children? Are you on the same page with how you're dealing with family members? Are you on the same page with how you're spending your time? Are you on the same page? Are you displaying the unity of God in your marriage by you and your wife or you and your husband being on the same page? That, that's, that's what's happening here in the text, right? We, we see this united Trinitarian Godhead. And what he's saying is, I have designed marriage to show the whole world what I'm like. United, unbreakable, one mission, one purpose, one love. That's what we see. Verse 21 through 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, Few little subtle things that are happening here in the text. God comes and he puts Adam in a deep sleep and he takes a rib. Now that's very important. God doesn't take a part of the top of his skull to show that woman is over man. Nor does God take a bone out of the foot of Adam to show that she is under him. But very subtly, he takes a rib to show that united relationship of man and wife right side by side, equal in dignity, value, and worth. Okay? There's also something else very subtle happening in the text. And I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss it because if you look at this, the language thus far has been, uh, again, in 18 and in 20, here's what it said. I'm, I'm going to make a helper for Adam. It's for Adam to be his helper. He needs a helper. So he, he's going to get some help with this person that I'm making, right? Now, just from a quick reading, does that sound like the marriage is all about Eve, or does it sound like the marriage is all about Adam? Yeah, from a quick reading, I mean, if, you just, if you're just flying through it, he gets the helper, right? It's bad that he is alone. He needs the helper, verse 18, and then in verse 20, he needs the helper, and then she gets brought to him. Okay, so it seems like it's all about Adam, but if you read the text that way, you'd be absolutely wrong. Okay, and let me tell you why. Here's what happens. He goes to sleep, takes the rib, right? Makes the woman and then brings her to him. And he says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In the Hebrew, this is a very beautiful poem. It's a song, right? So from the very beginning, God ordained that women should like musicians. Just happens. He sings a song, does this poem thing. It's very pretty and, and, and awesome. But you have to look at the wording that's here. Um, and then the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He brought, not brought as in here's a pet, not brought as in here's a slave, not brought as in here's a present for you, but brought as in, get the picture in your mind. There Adam stands in the garden and at the back of the chapel, yeah. There stands God the Father, and on his arm is his beautiful daughter. Yeah. And God the Father walks down the aisle in the garden, so proud. Have you guys been to a wedding? You seen how proud dads are? They got their beautiful daughter on their arm, and they come walking down the aisle. Everybody's crying. And, and here's a very interesting thing that traditional wedding services say, and they should say, the preacher says this, who gives this woman. Why do they say that? Why do they, here's why they say that. They say that because they're asking a very important question. Who is going to, this is what the question means, who is going to sacrificially love, serve, protect, and provide for this woman? That's what that question means. That's what that question means. It, 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 again, this word helper here, ladies, first off, you, you don't need to look down on being called a helper. Why? Because what's the Holy Spirit called? A helper. A helper. Okay, so, so 
Don't look down on being called the helper. And two, you have to see in this text that God the Father in this text is taking his beautiful daughter and walking her down the aisle. And he's asking Adam, right? He brings her and he's essentially saying to Adam, I am now requiring that you lovingly lay down and sacrifice your whole life for my daughter. I'm transferring authority over her to you, and you don't get to lord that authority over her. As a matter of fact, what you do with that authority is you turn into a humble servant to love her, to serve her, to protect her, to guide her, and to love her to the ends of the earth. You got that, Adam? So, you're taking notes. Number two, marriage is to glorify God by showing the sacrificial serving nature God. That's what marriage does. Listen, you got to get rid of the idea that marriage is 50-50. You got to throw that right out the window. What you have to do is see that a marriage is designed to be 100% and 100%. It's not 50-50, right? So, so this is showing the whole world as the husband lays his life down for his wife to love her, to serve her, to protect her, and the wife is there to help him, to love him, to serve him, right? To, to, to be there for him. They're both humbly pouring out their lives in sacrificial servitude, and the world looks in on the, on the inside and goes, what is happening in this marriage? These people just sacrifice for each other. They just love each other. This is a great marriage. What's up with this? And in that moment, we've just displayed something about the character of God. As your wife is feeling alone and neglected and you, you come towards her and you love her and you serve her and you nurture her, in that moment, men, your wife is getting a glimpse and a view of who God is. And as the man is leading the charge, and he's tired and he's weary and he feels alone. And you as a woman sacrificially love him, serve him, chase after him. In that moment, the man gets a glimpse of who God is. That God is the God who ultimately sacrifices himself on the cross. He is the God who steps out of the place of ultimate comfortability. He was the God in heaven being worshipped by angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And he stepped out of that to be born by a poor peasant gal to live a life of low income, of poverty, to, to be mocked, to be beaten, and ultimately to be crucified. I mean, this is the servant king. And so by serving each other, marriage then becomes the means by which your spouse, your children, and the world see the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This begins the biblical model of marriage, okay? I like the King James on this one. It says that you should leave, and then it uses the word cleave. I don't know if anybody, you guys have heard that in the sermon before, I'm sure. But, but it says that he leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife. Again, this begins the biblical picture of what marriage is supposed to be. There is no cohabitating here. There is no sex before marriage here. That, that is not in view at all. 
Um, what we see here is a man who provides, he gets a house, he gets a job, he gets a Bible, and then he pursues his wife and they become one. They forsake their families, okay, not like totally cut them off, but you have to see what happens here in the text is back in those days, family was incredibly important, monumentally important. And so what he's saying here is that they leave behind what's most important and they become one new family, okay? I know some of you are like, I wish my in-laws would read that text, okay? <laughs> but they become one new family. And it says that they become one flesh. One flesh. Again, sex is not just something that happens physically, but sex is the mingling of souls. Yeah. Okay? So, again, this idea in our culture that it's a great idea to cohabitate, to see if things will work out, just statistically doesn't work. Why? Because couples who cohabitate are actually way more likely to get divorced. Okay? So it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Go with what the Bible says. Here it begins to make this pattern for us. Okay, so there they are. They just got married. God's excited. Adam's excited. He's sang his little song. Very happy he doesn't end up with the orangutan. Gets the woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Their bodies were perfect. This is the original design here. Their bodies were perfect, right? No love handles, no wrinkles, no, no zits, no bumps, no nothing. I mean, just perfect. They look perfect. Not only they look perfect, they are perfect because there's no sin. There's no shame. They're not bringing in any past sexual sin. They're not bringing in any shame. They're not bringing any of that stuff. None of that gets brought into the marriage like what happens with us today. They are standing naked in perfection. They, they are having sex, and it's awesome. Yeah. Things are great. Now, how in the world are we today supposed to even attempt a marriage like this, naked and unashamed? I mean, that's the whole dating time is covering up, isn't it? I mean, it's the, the, the whole dating scene is, you know, just presenting yourself and, you know, wearing the mask and, you know, you can't be seen without your makeup. You can't, you know, make sure you got mints with you. You don't want bad breath. I mean, it's, it's all the show. But, but here we see this relationship to where they are naked and unashamed and everything's great, right? Until what happens? Until sin comes in. And what's the first thing that they do? They cover up. Sin enters into it and they're no longer naked and unashamed. They immediately um, go to cover up with fig leaves and then they hide from God, right? I mean, those are two really silly things if you think about it. Have you ever tried to wear leaves? Anybody wearing leaves this morning? Okay. No one here is wearing leaves because it's a terrible idea. So is trying to hide from God. You can't hide from God. But sin came in and distorted this perfect relationship. It distorted this great marriage. So now what? What happens now? But naked and unashamed, everything's perfect, emotionally vulnerable, blah, blah, blah. But now that can't be possible because sin has come into the world. The great news is that in Genesis 3.15, we hear the first news of the gospel, which when Adam and Eve sinned, God, listen, God could have rightfully damned all of humanity. Yeah. Adam, as the federal head and representative of all humans, God could have said, 
Adam sinned, you're a human, you're on his team, you're not on my team, therefore all damned. But what God does is he comes in with great love and grace and he provides an answer to sin. That answer to sin is grace. So therefore, number three, if you are taking notes, marriage is to glorify God by showing the grace of God. By showing the grace of God. You see, when a man and a wife, in the context of their marriage, when they're just gracious to each other, when they're forgiving, when they're loving, even when the other person doesn't deserve it, when they haven't earned it, you're just gracious, you just forgive, you just love, that's displaying, that's showing the glory of God to the world. Listen to this. Because God loves people as though they are better than they are, and loves them better than they deserve, man and wife get to love each other as though they are better than they are and better than they deserve. Isn't that great news? You Listen, you don't have to love your spouse based on how well they perform. And nor do they love you based on how you perform. You just love them. You just show grace to them. Why? Because that's exactly what God did. And when we do that for our spouse, that shows the glory of God first to your children, and it shows the glory of God to the world. So many marriages are marked by anger and bitterness because we just can't forget what they said last week, last month, or last year. Just not willing to let go of it. It still irritates me. When we talk about this subject, I still think about it. And there's not a heart of grace that's just willing to forgive and let go and be gracious. Listen, I don't have a perfect marriage. I think I have a great marriage. And here's why. Because my wife is incredibly forgiving when I do really stupid things and when I say really stupid things. So, let me ask you this morning. Is your marriage marked by grace or is it marked by bitterness? Is it marked by forgiveness or sharp comments? Are you dwelling on what they did last week, last month, last year? Or are you putting on display God's greatest attribute, which is his grace? Which is his grace. I'll close with this. I just want to read to you Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Here's what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? We just read that in Genesis. Now we're in Ephesians. Paul is speaking here, and he's quoting what we just read. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Paul is about to give us, he's about to exegete that. He's about to tell us what that means. Verse 32 in Ephesians chapter 5. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Mm. What Paul is saying there is that marriage is to be a picture of Jesus' love for his church. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Marriage isn't about you. Your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is about putting God's glory on display. Your marriage is about showing the world how much Jesus loves his church. That's what your marriage is about. Your marriage is about showing your spouse how much Jesus loves his church. That's what your marriage is about. It's not about you. 
So I want to ask you this morning, what is your marriage built on? What is the foundation of your marriage? Is it about having your needs met? Is it about being at some type of social status? Is it built on money? Is it built on, what, what is your marriage built on? Because the only foundation that can sustain a healthy, happy, joy-filled, God-honoring, Christ-honoring marriage, the only foundation is when our marriage is built on giving and showing the world God's glory. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that there are marriages in this room that are healthy. They're going really well. And so, Father, I pray this morning that throughout this series, you would grow them. That throughout this series, the good and healthy marriages would become more healthy, more vibrant. That the marriages would display more of your glory to a lost and dying world. Father, I pray for the marriages in the room that are not healthy. I pray for the hurting people in the room this morning. Father, would you send your spirit this morning to give hope to those who feel like there's no hope for their marriage? Father, would you give them the humility to come to the back during the prayer time and, and receive prayer over their marriage? Father, would you let them know that there is hope, that, that they can have a marriage that glorifies God. And when we glorify God, there is deep joy for us. So God, give hope this morning. Let them know it's not over. Let them know you haven't given up on their marriage and nor should they. Father, I pray for the singles in this room. Those who aren't married, pray for the gals specifically this morning who are longing for a godly man. May they wait with patience and endurance. Would you send your Holy Spirit to give them a patience to wait on the right man and to never, ever settle. Father, I pray that uh, both men in the room who are single and women in the room who are single would reject the cultural view, that they would swim against the, the tide and would say, I'm adopting the biblical view of marriage. I, I refuse to adopt some unrealistic romantic comedy view of marriage, but I'm going to wholly and fully embrace the truths of God's word. Most of all, God, this morning I pray that all of the marriages good, the bad, and the future marriages be built on a foundation of your of giving you glory and making much of your name. I pray all this in Jesus' name.